Eradicating mice will help the baby birds. Here's an episode about it for you birding nerds. Thank you for tuning in to Hannah and Eric Go Birding, a podcast by birders for birders. I'm Hannah and he's Eric. We created this podcast to share adventures, sometimes misadventures, and opinions that we have on different birding topics. We're definitely not experts and anything that we discuss that might be controversial. We want you to remember their own opinions and they might be different from yours. I feel like this one is definitely not a misadventure. Yeah, no misadventure here. This is fully adventure. <laughs> I'm so excited to talk about it. <laughs> well, before we before we talk about anything anything more, was there anything going on in the news that uh, is noteworthy that we need to talk about real quick? Yeah, so I think we talked about it in the last episode, but I'm going to bring it up again. So Global Bird Fair is happening in July. It's like in the middle of July in Rutland, England, which I think is like three hours north of London. I'm not entirely sure. And, uh, so that's really exciting because everybody thought like bird fair is dead. Oh no. And then global bird fair is happening. So that's exciting. Yeah. So it used to be, used to just be bird fair, um, that, uh, that kind of all collapsed and went away, but, um, the new organization, um, global birding, um, by Tim Appleton, um, revived it and we're back to global bird fair. And now that we're hopefully post post depths of COVID, um, we can actually have an event. That's super cool. I hope we can. I hope we can get out there in July. I hope so too. But July <laughs> is just so hard for us to get away from our hotel. Yes, so. June, July, August is the worst time for us to leave here on the Oregon coast. So thanks for scheduling <laughs> it then, Tim. <laughs> just kidding. Um, so yeah, we're hoping to get there if uh, if we can. Um, the other thing I didn't. Uh, it's not really like world news or news news or anything but uh fair we probably mentioned ivan phillipson um he has another podcast the science of birds Mm -hmm. which um kind of if you're looking for something that's more sciencey and more in depth of what's going on in the science community we think of ourselves as like a travel like fun birding podcast which we (laughs) hope we relate and then we there's other podcasts that are more science heavy and so like Science of Birds is definitely one that yes. digs it more into the weed of science of birds. Something we're interested in, but not interested enough in to do the research to do a properly oh, educated podcast yeah. about. <laughs> I don't, you know, he he probably spends hours and hours and hours of doing research, and I commend him for that. I don't have the patience for it. Yeah. But, so, Ivan um, released an episode um, last week, uh, two weeks prior to this episode coming out, I believe, um, that, um, is all about forensic ornithology. And we interviewed one of the people that he talks about <laughs> quite a bit, um, in, in the episode. So it's a really good, um, kind of look into forensic ornithology. So we, like Eric said, we interviewed Ariel Gaffney, mm-hmm. who is a forensic ornithologist in Southern Oregon, um, for, uh, I can't remember exactly. Is it? For U.S. Fish and Wildlife, Yeah, U.S. Fish and Wildlife, right? yeah. Yeah. Um, and anyways, so his episode goes into depth about the field itself and um, a lot more than what we talked with Ariel about. Yeah, so it's a great companion episode to the episode, the interview that we had with Ariel Gaffney. So if you're interested more in forensic ornithology, go check out Science of Birds and figure out what the depths of science that he d- delves into with that one. So, uh, another note, we did have a review come in. Yes, Eric, would you review. like to read us that one? We haven't had one for a couple episodes, I think. Or maybe we had one last episode. <laughs> I can't remember. Um, so, we got one called titled uh, Podcast and Puffins. Um, I just listened to your episode, pod- your podcast number 17, and noted that you two are exceptional storytellers. Not only do you effectively share your birding adventures with me while I carry on with whatever I'm doing, but at the, t- <laughs> at the same time, you teach a great deal about other 
other countries, regions, and cultures. I thrive on learning new things, and you make it fun. Along with enjoying your adventures, I like your thoughtful interviews. I particularly like the Dark Skies episode a few months back. Lastly, my husband and I were lucky to get a private puffin viewing and photography tour with Hannah and Eric last July at the beautiful Haystack Rock in Cana Beach, Oregon. It was a thrill to see and photograph the puffins, and we remember that day fondly. Thank you for what you do for the birds and for your kindness and generosity towards us. Well, thank you, Barb and Wendell, for <laughs> yes. for such a, a nice um, review. We really appreciate it. And thanks for listening. And, uh, you know, it, it's fun to hang out with Barb and Wendell. They're actually one of my friend's parents that I've known since childhood. Yeah. And, well, yeah, I've known them since I was a kid, too. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's fun that now we have this new relationship as birding friends. Yeah, it's, it's really cool. And... Um... If you come to Cannon Beach, don't expect that we'll have time for everyone to give everyone a tour of puffins. But but if we can, we but will. if we can, we will. We'll definitely show anyone that wants to come to Cannon Beach. If if we can if we can squeeze some time, um, they're here from May till basically from middle no, of April, April, yeah, all the way through uh, Labor, um, Labor Day, basically every year. So yeah. if you if you happen to be in the area, well. At least swing by and say hi. Um, and if you happen to be in the area and you don't swing by and say hi, don't e-bird it because we will know. Yes, we'll know. Yeah. <laughs> I constantly look at the hot spots in Cannon Beach. There's only like four of them, so it's it's easy to it's not not easy to pull the wool over our eyes in Cannon Beach. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Last week, Hannah had an episode come out um, with her podcast, Women Birders Happy Hour. Um, you want to tell us about what it is? Yeah, so I interviewed Arania, who is on, in Ontario, and I uh, had such a fun time talking with her. I feel like we're going to be best friends now, so <laughs> <laughs> I need to go up and see her up there. She needs to come down here to see me. Um, but anyways, the, the drink for that episode was a very thrush, because she came out to Oregon and got her life her very thrush, which was a very um, amazing moment for her. And uh, it's a pretty easy cocktail for that one. I came up with a West Coast IPA, so not really cocktail. It's just a beer. But it's <laughs> I felt like it just really fit with the varied thrush. So check out that episode anywhere you listen to podcasts. Yeah. And we're going on a couple trips coming up. So. Is, it, is it plural? Do we have a couple trips lined up? Well, or just maybe one? you don't know about them. Uh, I don't know about them, maybe. Well, we just got back from San Diego. We did. That's right. Yeah, yeah. the San Diego Bird Festival. Good time. We'll share about it in a couple episodes. Yes. And we're preparing to head out to Israel. For the Champions of the Flyway. Yes. At the end of March. And beginning of April. Which, I, beginning of April, I think, is technically when the event is. Yeah. And I'm on the Women in STEM team, as I was two years ago. And we're actually going to get a chance to compete in person together. So I'm very excited about that. And you finally get to meet all these all these women in, in person, finally. I've met two out of the four. So I'm <laughs> getting there. You're getting there. Um, but if you happen to um, enjoy our podcast, and we, you know, we've had people reach out to us before, and they're like, how can I you know, give you some funds for, you know, as a thank you for what you do. And we've never set up a buy me coffee or any of those things, but something you could do uh, would be to donate to my team. And we'll go ahead and share that in the show notes. Yes. The just giving page for that. I'd really appreciate it. If you can, if you can't, I totally understand and appreciate you um, considering it. So thank you. Yeah. Well, like Hannah said, we don't, we don't ask for money. We want you to send your money to conservation. And this is a conservation fund, uh, conservation program that we think is, 
definitely worth donating to. We'll we'll definitely be donating a bunch to it. And it's supporting me. <laughs> and it's supporting Hannah, so maybe maybe her team can win the most donated. Yeah. yeah. Whatever. <laughs> um so we also want to announce our bird nerd giveaway winner. Burr, 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 burr. I can do that sound this time because it's uh because it's the winner. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so we had a lot of great entries. Um, folks mentioned, uh, so the, the thing was that we asked you to tell us something that's not necessarily a birding item, so not binoculars um, or a scope or a camera, but something that you bring along birding with you that is indispensable. And Eric mentioned Merlin. I mentioned my new Mountain Smith bag, mm-hmm. which is just an amazing piece of my um collection of stuff that I bring with us. Yeah. And so we had things uh, mentioned that were like a flask of bourbon, um, a she pee, which is a thing that helps women pee outside, mm-hmm. um, sunblock, and then someone even mentioned their designated driver, their dad. Yeah, yeah they're, they're, they're too young to drive, so they, they need a driver to get out to birding <laughs> locations. So their designated driver is their their best birding accessory. Um, and what these the winner of this wins is... A birding accessory. Yeah. Um, we we got a uh, Celestron Elements uh, hand warmer slash charger. It's a Thermo Charge 3. Warms your hands great. Um, great for the winter, which it still is winter here. I think we had 20 through, 28 degrees here. Yeah, it's freezing today. Yeah. It'll, it'll also charge up your phone. Do you want to say, do you want to, do you want to say who won or should I say who won? Um, so we had a lot of entries and we <laughs> thank everyone for their entry. Uh, we randomly selected, and this is truly random, we went into a random number generator. Uh, Megan, who said that she brings along her Carhartt bag. Carhartt bag. Which, is, she included a picture of it, too, in the Did email. She? And it's a really nice, like, heavy-duty bag. Like, I mean, it's really small, mm-hmm. but it looks super durable and, like, a really nice accessory. So, congratulations, Megan, for uh, for winning this uh, Celestron Elements Thermocharge 3. And thank you to everyone who um, participated. And check out our next episode where we announce our next giveaway. Yes. Okay, so the main story, what we're here to talk to you about today, um, there is this cruise that we went on to Marion Island, which is part of the Prince Edward Islands, which is about halfway between South Africa and Antarctica. And this cruise that we were on with BirdLife South Africa and MSC Cruises uh, was a particular event. This this cruise will likely never happen again, and that's why we felt the need to get on this ship. It's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to go deep into the Southern Ocean on a cruise ship with 1,500 of our best friends. <laughs> way out there. And not only was it to go see these incredible birds, so uh, it's included, the Marion Island is included within the South Africa man you know, management. They, yeah, South Africa owns these islands. It's part, it's part of their jurisdiction. Exactly. And so a lot of birders wanted to get out there because there's species that inhabit these islands that you will likely never see in South Africa. And so they were able to include it on their South African list. And South Africans, you know, as we learned, are big listers. They actually have a South Africa listers club that's so, super active. Yeah, so they're at least as dedicated to listing as Americans, may, maybe more so. But they're definitely definitely listers down in South Africa. And so when we were on the ship, we realized how much of this was a fundraiser to help this charge of eradicating house mice from Marion Island. And we were able to um, steal a little bit of Dr. Anton Wolfhart's time, who is the project manager for the Mouse Free Marion Project. 
to to tell us more about this effort and why it's happening, what you know any repercussions are, and why everyone should care about it. It was so fun to to speak with him. Um, you know, we were on a cruise ship, so we were able to squirrel away in the library for a few minutes where <laughs> nobody was because they were all out on deck birding. Yeah, so we really appreciate his time, and please enjoy our conversation with Dr. Anton Wolfart of Mouse Free Marion. Okay, so we're sitting here on the MSC Orchestra in the middle of the South uh, South Ocean, Southern Ocean, Southern Ocean, Southern Ocean. Yeah. Um, we'll be poking up flesh in the Southern Ocean. <laughs> that's probably that's, that's probably true. We 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 are going going kind of up into the the, the Atlantic <laughs> Ocean. We I guess were. we were in the Southern Ocean for a while. In the Southern Ocean. Yeah, and we're we're sitting here with Anton, the um, the project manager for uh, the Bird Free Marion project. It's probably. <laughs> oh my God. <gosh. laughs> yeah. Look, look, yeah. The, the Mouse Free Marion project, we, we want plenty of birds on this, uh, for this whole project, but uh, the whole, can you tell us, little, let's start off t- telling us about yourself. So, um, who are you, what do you do, and how did you get involved? Yeah, thanks very much, Eric and Hannah, and for the opportunity to tell you a bit about myself, and more importantly, the project. And uh, I'm Anton Wolfert, um, as you mentioned, I'm the project manager for the Mouse Free Marion project. And um, yeah, I've been, my career actually in conservation and seabird work started some 28 years ago on Marion Island. Um, I just finished my undergraduate degree and saw an advert for a research assistant to go and spend a year on Marion Island studying penguins and albatrosses. And uh, so I was lucky enough to get that position and it was life changing. It was 1994, 1995. And I think as with anybody who goes to Marion Island and especially people that are lucky enough to spend a whole year there. It's just an absolutely astounding place and it really shaped the rest of my career and I've worked on seabirds and islands ever since, uh, doing, you know, in various roles. Um, for this project I was mostly working with um, seabird bycatch issues, so trying to find ways of reducing bycatch in a range of fisheries both in South Africa and internationally. Um, and then the opportunity came along to um, apply for the position of project manager for this project. And I had known about the project, I had been aware of some of the discussions that had taken place in the early days, and they got to the point where they were now keen to employ a project manager to kind of, I suppose, move the project to the next phase. And I applied for the position and was lucky enough to get it. And I've been in that role for just less than a year now. And yeah, it's an amazing privilege to to be involved again in work on Marion Island, and especially with such a, an important conservation project. So this this project, the Mouse Free Marion, is really kind of still in the pretty early stages right now, right? It's, Fairly early stages. Yeah, it's a it's in the planning phases, I would say. Okay. Um, it's you know we there's a lot to do. Uh, the the actual operation itself sounds quite straightforward on paper and in theory but it's a very challenging operation logistically and so there's a lot of planning that has to be done and there's a huge amount of fundraising that we still need to do to enable us to press the go button and Mm -hmm. kind of move to the next phase of the project. Um, Maybe just to say that um, the the island itself is a what we call in South Africa special nature reserve. It's a a very strictly protected um, nature reserve. It's the only um, special nature reserve in South Africa and it's managed by the South African Department of Forestry, Fisheries and the Environment and they are one of the key project partners in this project together with BirdLife South Africa who have established the Mouse Free Marion Nonprofit Company uh, which is um, who I'm employed by. 
And um, so yeah, we're in we're in the I wouldn't say early stages. We're okay. in the planning stages. Um, right. We've done quite a lot of work already, but we still have a lot to do. And we are working really hard to um, hopefully initiate the actual um, eradication operation, the baiting operation, mm -hmm. in the um, austral winter of 2024. Okay. So um, I know why I wouldn't want to have a, house, a mouse at my house, but why, you know, is it suddenly a big deal at Marion Island? Well, maybe just to step back and kind of let you know about why, how the mouse got the mice got there in the first yeah. place. Yeah, start, start um, at the beginning of the story. Start at the beginning of the story. <laughs> yeah. So they, um, the mice, the mice obviously do not occur naturally on Marion Island. It's um, and we think that sometime in the early 1800s, certainly before 1818, which is when they were first uh, recorded on Marion Island, the sealing parties, the, the the people that were coming to the island to um, to exploit the fur seals and the elephant seals, um, brought with them inadvertently um, stowaway mice, which mm -hmm. would have made their way onto the island. And the mice have been there ever since, so for some 200 years. And we know from quite a lot of research that's taken place on Marion Island that for a long time now the mice have been having an adverse impact on the ecology of the island. So um, ever since South Africa annexed the island in 1948, there have been ongoing research programs um, on the island and so we've got a lot of really good long-term data sets that enable us to understand the various ecological processes and the kind of conservation issues on the island. And quite a few studies before about 2000 had um, investigated the impacts that these alien mice were having on the island and at that time the impacts were thought to be kind of restricted to the invertebrates on the island and the, um, and the, and the vegetation. So mice are, are generalists and they're, they're kind of voracious kind of um, predators of you know, plants, invertebrates and, and all sorts of things. Yeah. But at that point it wasn't known that they were actually attacking seabirds and, and we don't think that they were at that time. But um, the one bird that they were impacting in those early days was the lesser or black-faced sheathbill. And that's because in the winter time the sheathbill um, preys on, includes in its diet, invertebrates. Um, in the summertime the sheathbills hang around the penguin colonies and they steal food from penguins to feed their chicks mm -hmm. but uh, in the winter time when they're looking after themselves and most of the penguins have left the island except for the king penguins they need to find alternative food sources and so in the winter time they were competing with mice for the invertebrate prey and because the mouse population was so large mm -hmm. they were essentially out competing sheep bulls and the breeding success of sheep bulls was declining over time and was much lower than was being recorded on Prince Edward Island, which is the adjacent island that forms part of this island group, which has never had any mice on it. Um, and then, um, and, and, and we know that as a result of, of climate change, uh, specifically the temperature and the precipitation. So, um, you know, 40, 50 years ago, the island was a lot colder and a lot wetter than it is today. And we know this because we've got really good weather records that span, you know, from continuous kind of records from 1948 until present. I thought that was really interesting that there's been a continuous weather station there that long, so they can they can look at any of this data, any of the ecological data that they have on plants and animals, and relate it back to weather and, yeah. cli and climate fairly easily with a station that's within a couple kilometers of, of their research site. Yeah, and absolutely, and it's been, it's been incredibly useful because it just enables us to have a much clearer understanding of the various factors that are contributing towards the trajectories of these different populations. Yeah. And, 
as the I mean, so, so these mice aren't particularly well adapted to cold, wet environments. So in the winter time, they don't breed and they allocate all of their resources to just kind of keeping themselves alive, really. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And um, but what we're finding is that over the last thirty years, as the temperature was becoming warmer and the precipitation was becoming less, the island was becoming drier. Uh, it essentially extended the breeding season for mice. The conditions became more favorable. So okay. they could start breeding earlier and produce many more litters than was the case 40 years ago. Okay. And um, the studies were showing that over a 30-year period from the 1980s until the present day, the house mouse population had increased by about 500%. That's geez, huge increase in the densities. And what happens is that the numbers just go through the roof towards the end of summer yeah. And uh, and the there is just not enough resources for those mice to get them get that whole population through the winter period when there are far fewer resources for them. Yeah. And so what uh, and so that then just drove these invertebrate populations to very low levels. Um, and as I say, probably affected the lesser sheath bull because we know the breeding success of the sheath bulls has declined over time. Mm -hmm. um, and then in the early two thousands, something shifted. It was in two thousand and three that uh, scientists first observed mice actually attacking some of the surface nesting albatrosses and it was a wandering albatross that was first observed yeah. um, with um, mouse attack wounds on it and um, and presumably this was because the mice had now outstripped the invertebrate food resource and we're looking for other alternative food resources other you know, forms of protein and nutrients yeah. and uh, resorted to starting to attack and prey on these defenseless albatrosses, and I say defenseless, but the albatrosses are substantially larger than the mice. Oh, for sure. Yeah. But um, of course they, you know, they are seabirds that have evolved on these islands which are naturally devoid of any terrestrial predators, so mm -hmm. they just simply don't have any defense mechanisms. So they sit there, like sitting, you know, just they essentially are kind of sitting ducks, you know, and yeah. they are attacked by these mice, and after a few nights of being attacked, they become so fatigued that they eventually die. and the, initially, the reports were quite localized and infrequent, but mm -hmm. there were similar um, attacks happening on other islands, um, Gough, Midway, and, and other islands. And so there were certainly warning bells that um, the issue might become more severe on Marion Island. And sure enough, um, research done by scientists on Marion Island uh, found that over time, um, as the um, conditions became more favorable for mice, and especially in very dry years, the, the kind of scale, frequency, and intensity of these attacks increased. Um, more and more of these surface nesting seabirds were in our targets for mice. We had sooty albatrosses, grey-headed albatrosses. Um, studies were being done on the burrowing petrels, which are a lot more difficult to see because they nest underground in these burrows. Mm -hmm. But looking at the breeding success of the burrowing petrels um, and comparing the breeding success and densities of these birds on Marion versus Prince Edward, um, and there were just multiple lines of evidence that these mice were now increasing the scale and frequency of attacks to the extent that we're now hugely concerned that the majority of seabirds on Marion Island face a very dire future in the presence of mice and uh, the forecast is that of the 28 species of seabirds on Marion Island, um, 18 of those are likely to go locally extinct in the next 30 to 100 years if the oh, mice geez. are not removed. Oh my gosh. Well, in and, and like locally extinct, you're, you're talking like the, the wandering albatross that 25% of its total po breeding population is on Marion Island. It's worldwide yeah. breeding population, so you're, 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 you only have 75% left. That's a huge portion to get rid of. 
Absolutely. Just gone. Yeah, no, I mean, Marion Island is incredibly important for seabirds. So you mentioned wandering albatross. Um, it's you know, perhaps the most iconic of the pelagic seabirds. Mm -hmm. And as South Africa, we have a really important global responsibility to conserve the populations that exist on both Marion and Prince Edward Island. Yeah. Collectively, um, those two islands, which are about 20 kilometers apart and form part of the, of the Prince Edward Island Special Nature Reserve, mm -hmm. Um, they support almost half of the global population, with, as you mentioned, Marion supporting about a quarter. Yeah. Um, there are other um, seabird populations which um, are also really important. The um, grey-headed albatrosses, um, the Marion Island has um, over 10%, probably 12-13% of the global population. <laughs> there are other species which are being heavily hit by the mice. Um, there are other seabirds as well that uh, for which Marion Island hosts significant proportions of the global population. So. Yeah. It, it really will have not only an impact on Marion Island and the Prince Edward Island group, but globally for these really important, remarkable and, and special seabirds. Yeah. So what is, what is the actual plan? I mean, it's you know easy enough to put out mouse traps, but I can't imagine you're going to put out a million, well, probably more than that. Ten, ten um, billion yeah, mouse traps mouse in every traps. corner. So <laughs> what are you going to do to get rid of them? Yeah, so it's, um, you're right, mouse traps would not work. Um, <laughs> on a very small site, um, you can use other methods. But Marion Island is a very large subantarctic island. It's about 30,000 hectares, 300 square kilometers. Um, so not, not as big as an island like South Georgia, but um, by subantarctic island standards, it's certainly very large. And it, it was significant when we like, could see it through the clouds two days ago. <laughs> When, like, yeah. it was significant island. Like, it's not, you're not coming up like a little desert island. When we're talking about Marion Island, like, on, on the global map, if you look at it, it's a, it's a little tiny dot. Sure. But when you get to it, it's, it's an island. It's there's, there, there's a lot of, a lot of land there. Yeah. No, no, it's a very large island. And, and the only, the only method that has proven successful in eradicating mice and rats from these large subantarctic islands is to use helicopters to broadcast a specially formulated Rodenticide bait, mm -hmm. um, and um, you know, on the, on the really really small islands, perhaps 10, 20 hectares, you can use bait stations combined with traps. And people are innovating new methods all the time. But on these large islands, you you need to use um, you, you need to deploy bait, and mm -hmm. you need to broadcast that bait aerially so that you can cover the entire island. And it's it's important to just kind of um, I suppose highlight that when we're talking about eradication, we really need to remove every single individual mouse. If we leave you know, a tiny patch of the island in the one corner that we didn't get to in time or we weren't able to spread the bait to that area, um, if there are a handful of mice in that area and there are of both sexes, then almost certainly they will be the nucleus for a rebounding mouse population. Yeah. So on a project like Marion, we, we simply can't experiment with any novel approaches. What we need to do is we need to make use of proven methods proven products mm -hmm. and you know fine-tune them for use on Marion because every island is different and every eradication operation is different mm -hmm. but there's a there's a lot of um, knowledge that has been developed over I suppose the last 20 to 30 years and when I was in Marion Island in 94-95 I don't think anybody would have thought it possible to eradicate mice on an island size and topographic complexity of Marion but largely due to the pioneering efforts of the New Zealanders, who, as you know, have got more than their fair share of pests on the two large islands and yeah. the small islands, they've spent a huge amount of time, effort, resources into developing methods and approaches to uh, removing 
not only rodents, but you know, you know, stoats and possums and various other pests from their islands to try and um, recover and restore a lot of the um, island populations. And I think the thing with, with Marion is that we are very fortunate in that we still have the significantly important seabird populations. On many of those other sites, you know, in New Zealand for example, they have a situation where the pests have um, had such an adverse impact on the, on the bird populations that they have to actively bring back birds to those areas to uh, restore them in, a, in, in that sort of way. So the, the way, it, it, it's quite simple in theory, essentially what you do is you, you have a fleet of helicopters, yeah. um, you, uh, and this is why I mentioned earlier that we're in the planning phase, and in fact I would say 90% of an operation like this is about planning. Mm -hmm. the, the planning is absolutely essential because um, it means that by the time, if, you, if your planning is rigorous and complete, that when you get to the island to do the baiting operation, everything should go well. Just wham, bam, done, and you're out of there. Yeah, we hope. <laughs> <laughs> Especially uh, you know if the weather is on your side. But yeah. you so you, you you know you, you look at the island, you um, you map everything out, you work out kind of your baiting strategy, what sort of um, density of bait you need to use, where the sensitive areas are, where the areas are where you've got greater densities of mice uh, of mice what your kind of stratified baiting strategy might look like. You might in some areas do three sowings of bait, whereas in other areas you might only do two. Mm -hmm. So you, you do that all in advance of the operation and you plan out a, a whole lot of predetermined flight lines that the helicopters are getting, the pilots are going to fly. And you use, the helicopters have these underslung bait buckets which have mechanical spinners um, and they can, uh, you have apertures that can be set at different sizes depending on how what your baiting density is that you want to set. Yeah. And then these helicopter pilots, um, and the key thing with these operations is to use experienced helicopter pilots because um, they really are probably, when you get down to the actual baiting work, the critical factor in, in, in determining whether you succeed or fail. Because mm -hmm. you can imagine, you know, on some of those really steep coastal cliffs um, and the wind comes up, you want that pilot to have enough experience to know you know, how to fly those lines and to know whether they've been able to fly them kind of comprehensively or not. So they fly these lines um, and what you do is you um, you kind of fly them in overlapping kind of transects so that you essentially over-engineer the baiting kind of application. You make sure yeah. that there's more than enough bait um, for, you know, all of the mice to get at least one and, and many more than uh, the minimum number of pellets that are required for them to get the lethal dose. Yeah. Um, and, and, and you do that to cover the entire island, the entire island where you know you've got mice. In some, on some islands such as South Georgia, the very high altitude areas, we, you know, they knew that there were no mice, there were rats there. So they were able to exclude those from the baiting strategy. Mm -hmm. On Marion, we know at the very high altitude areas, um, there are probably no mice right at the top. But a little bit lower down, there might be very low densities of mice. So we would still bait there. But a low density is still one pregnant female is enough to, exactly. to do so, it in. So we would cover the entire island, um, and we do that twice. Um, so we do an initial sowing, and then ideally we would wait 10 days to uh, a couple of weeks, and we would do another sowing all over again. And okay. some, some areas might get a third baiting areas that are maybe are very steep coastal cliffs just to make sure that there is enough bait that sort of sticks in position. Yeah. Um, and, um, and the reason you do it twice is just to increase the kind of um, the, the time which the bait is going to persist in the environment to make sure that you, um, that, you, know, you do it comprehensively mm -hmm. and that um, if any of the mice um, did not encounter a bait pellet in the first drop, 
that they will they will still be there remaining you know several weeks and months afterwards. Yeah. And um, so that that is a very simple explanation of what one does, um, but it's logistically hugely challenging because uh, we do it in winter time. And, uh, <laughs> the winter time is when the weather is uh, most inclement and um, yeah. and most challenging. And the, the reason we do it in winter is because that's when the mice, as I said earlier, are most desperate for food, and so they're going to be driven to yeah. these bait pellets. Um, and it's also when the mice are not breeding, so there won't be any youngsters kind of in burrows that are dependent on parents that won't come up when the bait is uh, made available. Okay. Um, so all of the mice will come to the surface to, to feed mm -hmm. and will encounter these delicious tasting pellets <laughs> which uh, will have the toxin in it which uh, will, um, you know, will, will result in their death. Yeah. So I, I kind of, when, when you showed some maps of this in, in one of your presentations early, earlier on in the, in the cruise, the, um, I, I really was picturing, um, like when you spread fertilizer with a, um, with, with a rotary spreader, like in your yard, like it's, it's like the exact same thing. You don't, you don't want to put so much down that it's just a waste of material that you're just like plopping it down, but you want to make sure every square inch of your yard is covered in, in the granular pellets. Yeah, and it's the same thing with this, but a much a much higher risk or much higher uh, level of like strategy and, and danger if you don't cover every single square inch. Yeah, no, exactly. It's uh, that's exactly it, Eric. I mean, it's very the, the bait buckets we use are actually based on fertilizer buckets that helicopters will <laughs> yeah. use to in agricultural settings. Um, and I was just speaking to a helicopter pilot the other day who's done some of this work, mm -hmm. and he was agreeing that, you know, obviously it's important for them to do that work very accurately, but if they were to deviate a little bit, certainly not the end of the world, mm -hmm. and, you know, it wouldn't result in the failure of their operation. And he was, he was really kind of astounded by the sort of binary nature of the outcome of this operation, that if you, as an individual pilot, happened to deviate to an extent which meant that there was a gap in the bait coverage by of, you know, 30, 40, 50 meters, mm -hmm. and that, that that one gap could potentially could be result enough. in the failure of that operation. He just said, he's, it sort of blew his mind that, you know, that was kind of the level of the odds and the kind of the, the risk associated with not doing it properly. And um, so, so that's exactly how you do it. And you do, um, you know, you did systematically, and as I say, you over-engineer it so that you're putting out quite a lot more bait than mm -hmm. you need and you know there's a lot of research that goes into working out what the application rate should be. Um, in some of the tropical islands they put out a huge amount more bait than they need for the rodents but that's because they have um, other species which also consume the bait. So crabs for example will consume the bait okay. uh, and the nothing happens to the crab because mm -hmm. it's an anticoagulant which affects the blood clotting system and they don't yeah. have the same. And they, they've got a whole system. different system. Is, yeah. But it just it removes bait that's intended for the target species yeah. and therefore reduces potentially the likelihood that all of your target species, um, all of the individuals of the target species will encounter that bait. Mm -hmm. Well that's a good point. So on this project, do you anticipate this impacting any other species other than the mice? It's um, so. It, it's something that we are very carefully working through and we, we know enough about the non-target species impacts from previous operations mm -hmm. and from research projects and from our understanding of the, um, of the sort of toxin pathways in these sorts of projects and the susceptibility of different species on, on the island, um, those species that we are not intending to impact. So um, there are a number of things that one does to reduce and to mitigate any potential impacts. So maybe just to say that the, the toxin that um, is used in the bait 
is not specific to mice. Mm -hmm. it, it does affect any vertebrate that has um, a blood system and kind of... Um, it, the di the iron-based blood system. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's, I mean, it just interferes with the vitamin K production process and kind of impedes blood clotting. Yeah. So if we humans had to eat a, enough of this bait, you know, we would also kind of succumb to its impacts. Um, we, we have to eat a little bit more than the mouse, though. Well, yeah. I mean, we would have to eat probably, I don't know, perhaps 50 kilograms of the stuff. So oh it's, uh, you can't imagine that somebody's going to accidentally do that. Yeah. Um, but um, so it, it isn't specific, um, mm -hmm. which does mean that there is potential for other species to be impacted. Mm -hmm. um, the good thing about a seabird island is that it's um, most of the species that are there, in fact, all of the species on Marion except one, seabirds and as we know seabirds will be foraging offshore they don't feed on land yeah they don't eat anything that's there so it's yeah re re that really helps bycatch in terms of those guys those guys yeah, reducing it, yeah. yeah so the one exception is that there are some scavenging species there are seabirds and will forage a lot of the time at sea on marine prey mm -hmm. but they do also um, scavenge um, on the island and um, we think that it's more likely that these species will be um, potentially impacted by dead mice Mm -hmm. rather than the pellets. So there's been yeah. a lot of research done on Marion Island to look at these scavenging species and the extent to which they might eat baits. Um, and it was, it was found that um, some of them showed an interest but kind of never actually ingested the bait. I think that sometimes one has to kind of differentiate or be aware that um, what you find in a trial isn't necessarily going to be replicated in reality. So just because in a trial um, lesser sheeples, for example, mm -hmm. um, didn't actually ingest the bait. Doesn't mean that some of them weren't in a situation where we're doing natural baiting operation. Yeah. So um, the species that would be most likely to be um, to be interested in the bait and mice that they find dead mice are mm -hmm. the lesser or blackface sheeple, the bronze skua, uh, and the kelp gulls. Okay. The, the skuas. Um, are away from the island largely in the winter time, so we are less concerned about them. Um, the sheeples are the species which um, are probably going to be of greatest concern. So, but as I say, we know from previous operations um, the kind of um, pathways and the kind of sort of dynamics that happen with the the bait, um, the dead mice and sheeples. South Georgia had sheeples, a different species, mm. and certainly there were um, some individual sheeples that died as a result, and in some areas. There was a you know a decent number that died as a result of yeah. either feeding on the bait or on dead rats that they found. Um, but with these kind of operations, the the sort of principle and the sort of approach that one takes is you you kind of do a risk assessment to understand what the likely impacts are, and you only proceed on the basis that the benefits far outweigh the costs. Yeah. So we've got a very good understanding of the, the likely impacts and so that's informed the planning of our operations. So the timing is one of the factors that we have incorporated to reduce any impacts. Um, and then we look at a number of other factors and we are in the process at the moment, we have an advisory panel of experts, experts that are experts on the actual birds of the island, mm -hmm. but experts on the eradication um, methodology and ecotoxicologists that are doing a formal risk assessment to just formalize the different scenarios and um, you know what that might mean for our operation, mm -hmm. and so um, that process is still underway. But there are a number of other factors. So, for example, the sheeples. Um, so, I mean, we are expecting that there will be some individual sheeples that will die as a result of this. But our expectation at the moment, based on my understanding, and this would need to be confirmed by the outcome of this assessment process, mm -hmm. is that it will be a short-term impact involving a relatively small proportion of the overall population 
and it will be something which is reversible. You know, once the operation has been completed, that sheathbolt population should recover. Um, and one has to balance um, you know, the impact of sheathbolts against the overall kind of um, positive outcomes of removing the mice and the predation effects that they're having on the whole suite of species on the island. So, I mean, it, it highlights that there's no perfect kind of eradication methodology that only targets the target species. Yeah. Um, there's not a house mice poison that's <laughs> genetically, that genetically determined just for house mice and that's it? Yeah, that's no, there's, there's nothing available. And you know, who knows, maybe... <laughs> maybe I mean, with enough donations we can, we can create that. <laughs> or, you know, I mean, maybe there's uh, thousands of birders on a cruise or maybe some grad students that would happily, you know, be on the island and pick up all the dead mice so it wouldn't even be an issue. <laughs> well, the other thing about the dead mice, actually, is now that you bring it up, is that we know from research and from other operations that the majority of the mice, um, once they ingest the toxin, mm -hmm. actually, um, when they start feeling unwell, they also become light sensitive and they actually oh. go down into oh. their burrows right. and die underground. So work that was done on Macquarie Island in South Georgia revealed that probably 75 to 85% of the mice that die, die, do so underground, which is great for our operation because it means that there are very few, relatively few, of the mice that die that are on the, on the surface and accessible yeah. easily to birds such as a sheepfold. Okay. But it's, I think it's important to acknowledge that, um, that there will likely be in, impacts at an individual level. Mm -hmm. um, at this stage, we're confident that um, those impacts will not be significant at a population level. Um, okay. The other issues that we kind of, um, that factor into this kind of planning is that um, Prince Edward Island has a healthy population of sheepfolds. And if, in a, in a worst-case scenario, we, there were to be huge numbers of sheep bulls that died as a result of the baiting, um, this population on Prince Edward Island provides a sort of rescue reservoir population, which could be used, uh, perhaps they would naturally colonize Marion Island, mm -hmm. or, you know, again, in a worst-case scenario, one could consider active translocation of those birds if it was necessary. So one considers very carefully all of those issues. You know, we don't just go in there and say, well, you know, we need to put poison down and it's hope for the best. It's, yeah. it's really rigorously well planned out and all of the different um, scenarios are considered. And at the end of the day, we then make an informed decision and recommendation or recommendation and decision mm -hmm. based on the overall outcome, which must be net positive, you know, for conservation. Because, yeah. um, and, and fortunately, you know, there are some islands where they um, have endemic species which they are concerned might be affected by the baiting to such an extent that one could potentially have a significant impact on those populations. And then sometimes in those cases, they actually catch a number of birds that they keep in aviaries for the duration of the baiting operation to then release them afterwards as the sort of source population that can be used to help the recovery of the affected population. At this stage, um, we, you know, we haven't made a decision on that. Mm -hmm. we, um, it's looking like the various factors linked to the sheep bills and the cult bills would not necessitate that, but I don't want to say that we're not going to because the door is not closed. The yeah. outcome yeah. of the assessment that's been done by this expert advisory panel. But as I say, we've uh, most of our thinking and planning and careful consideration of this is based on similar operations with similar species, where um, we we know the outcomes of those, and we've um, incorporated the outcomes and the interpretation of those into our own planning to ensure that we maximize our chance of success mm -hmm. and we minimize the impacts and any impacts that are realized are short-term in nature and um, are only sort of relevant at the individual level rather than the population level.
Yeah, like, like, like you said, short-term and reversible, yeah. as opposed to leaving mice there, which is long-term, irreversible yeah. sort of damage. Not even that long-term at this yeah, point. Not even, yeah, yeah. It's, it's short-term irreversible. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think it highlights the, um, that these things are always a bit of a trade-off. Mm -hmm. As I said earlier, there isn't a perfect solution. Um, and, and we also don't want to introduce um, mitigation measures that are untested and could potentially increase the complexity and the risks associated with the project. Mm -hmm. you know, I think what happens sometimes is very well-meaning kind of um, people might say, well, why don't you do this or go and um, you know, we'll bring collect cats, as many We'll bring cats on the island, <laughs> yeah. and then, then, then we'll bring snakes to I get mean, the cats, and then we'll, yeah. bring, then we'll bring mongoose to get the snakes. That so. didn't work last time, but maybe this time yeah. we will. <laughs> Yeah, so it's, uh, I think we've benefited from years and years and years of, um, you know, island eradications, learning all those lessons. I mean, our project comes and is informed by the sort of culmination of literally decades of research and yeah. practice, which have, has led to sort of really um, rigorous guidelines on how to do these operations that, that do have to be modified for use in the particular circumstances. And Marion is challenging because it's a very large island. It's going to be the largest island on which an attempt is made of um, to eradicate mice in a single attempt. So South Georgia, as I mentioned earlier, is a much larger island, but they could do that in different phases because the glaciers that um, go down to the sea effectively separate the island into different compartments. Oh, okay. And sure. the rats and the mice do not cross those glaciers, and so they could do a section that's bounded by two glaciers and yeah. then um, they could then, in a year or in two years' time, they could go and do another section and know that the um, baited section that they have completed is done. is done and is not going to be reinvaded from the adjacent areas because of those glacier barriers. On Marion and most other islands, we don't have that, that um, opportunity. So we've got to do it all in one go because we've got to remove the mice quicker than they can breed yeah. and quicker than they can repopulate those areas. So that needs, uh, that requires a, a one-stop intervention to do it all in one go. Yeah. All, all, all done within one month. Basically. Well, that would be fantastic, <laughs> but uh, given the weather we're likely to experience, yeah. um, it will take longer than a month because, so probably the conditions that we would bait in would be clear days where the kind of wind is not kind of much not, stronger than 25 not, not what it was doing yesterday yesterday we wouldn't be baiting yeah yeah and that's not because <laughs> yeah. that's not because the pilots can't fly helicopters in those winds it's because the accuracy of the baiting yeah. would be compromised so um say for example we need 20 flying days if we had you know a fleet of four or five helicopters and we needed 20 flying days that doesn't mm -hmm. sound like a lot if we had 20 consecutive good days <laughs> it would be fantastic but i can guarantee you um, that we will not have 20 good, you know, consecutive good flying yeah. days. So one needs to make sure that you've got a large enough window to fit in those 20 flying days within mm -hmm. the window that you have um, budgeted for and have provided within the project planning. Yeah. Um, so the, so the, the actual number of days that one's operating doing this is, is not very much, but um, the time that it takes to um, complete that uh, can be as much as you know three four months potentially. Yeah, well, like like you said, it just gets more and more complicated. The more the more details you look at as to what needs to happen, it's just oh yeah, it's simple. Just go out there, put some poison down. Rats will be done. We'll be done with this. But it's it's like okay, well, they have to fly a certain way. You have this topography. You have 
you have the potential for other other animals eating it. You have you have the weather. You have everything. There's a lot of factors. You're 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 two mile, or you're two days boat trip away from the island from from any other civilization. So it's just pile issue after issue after issue. Yeah. Just pile onto it. So. And it's actually even, a little more complicated than <laughs> yeah. It's even more complicated. We we run a quite a fast ship here, but the yeah, the ship that we'll use will take um, four days to get down there. So and it's yeah. extremely costly. I mean, if we get down there and realize that we, you know, have a piece of forgot your phone to yeah. yeah. um, I mean, that's potentially catastrophic because yeah. it's uh, if it's a critical piece of equipment. Oh, for sure. And um, and I mean, just to highlight some of the logistical complexities and challenges that if we were to start baiting, you know, on the coast and we were to fly these transects and then the following day we had bad weather and then the day after that we continued baiting, that would be fine. We would just continue where we left off. Mm -hmm. But if we, you know, we baited an area and then we had to stop baiting for four, five days, six days, a couple of weeks, we couldn't just, you know, continue where we left off because we would assume that mice from the adjacent area would have penetrated the area that we've already baited mm -hmm. and might now be taking up territories within those areas. So we would have to work back and do a couple of transects at least of the areas that have already been baited to make sure that any mice that have reinvaded those areas, mm -hmm. not necessarily the entire area, but some of it, and um, that means you're using more bait, you using more of the limited time that you have allocated to the whole project. So it's just, um, you know, we can look at the average weather conditions in winter over the last couple of decades and say, mm -hmm. well, this is what we might expect. Um, but we all know that um, you know each year is not an average year, and we might get down there and have a fantastic year and get it done in record time, which would be yeah. absolutely amazing. But um, we might also experience a very um, adverse year weather-wise, and then that provide that poses all sorts of challenges to the project. And we plan for that. We plan for a worst-case scenario. We say, well, let's assume that we have literally. 17% of the time, 15% of the time, we have bad weather. H how do we need to plan for that? We still need to make sure we can complete it. Mm -hmm. Because although you know we would hope not to experience those conditions, we need to make sure if we do, we can still successfully complete the operation. So I think that's that's why the, the planning is so detailed and has to be so carefully done and has to consider all sorts of scenarios. Um, and that's what makes it challenging as well. But, um, you know, Given the high rate of success on kind of operations that have been completed using best practice mm -hmm. we're very confident that um, we are we, we will be able to successfully complete the operation and eradicate mice awesome. well and you have a little bit more time to to continue the planning process since 2024 i mean it probably feels like it's coming right up for you but you know still it's only 2022 away. now. It's the beginning of 2022 now, so we've we've got two two years to finish the planning on this. And we think, oh, <laughs> no, well, you know, I, it's it's amazing because people have come up to me on the ship and they've said, "Wow, 2024. That sounds like a long time away." And I am thinking, "My goodness, have we got enough time?" <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think when I started, I thought yeah, that's that's a that's a very generous amount of time. Yeah. But once you get into the details and you realize kind of what needs to what needs to be done, what needs to happen, the sort of you know, there, there, there are lots of regulatory processes that we need to go through and um, permissions that we need to get. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and those are all important. We need to demonstrate that we've carefully considered all of these issues, such as the non-target issues we talked about. Yeah. Um, and that's a really useful process because it makes us think about, um, you know, um, various things which may or may not happen, but mm -hmm. we need to make sure that we have considered them and that we have planned accordingly so that yeah. um, we have a, 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 you know, our planning 
accommodates kind of all of those issues so that we do maximize our chance of success and minimize any short-term negative impacts that will hopefully, um, you know, uh, we can recover from very quickly thereafter. Yeah, for sure. So thank you so much for sharing your time with us to tell us more about this. Um, but I have one last question. So for those of us sitting in the U.S. or in Europe, you know, that's very far removed from Marion Island, never been there, never, you know, anticipated Some people never there. even heard of it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, why should people be aware of it or, uh, you know, if they're able to contribute to this project? But how could they if they're, if they're okay. so inclined? Yeah, you know, it's... it's I, I'm kind of perhaps slightly biased because I've been to Marion Island. But what your listeners might not realize is that because Marion Island is a special nature reserve, um, the average South African will never get to go there. It's, it's, it's not open to tourists. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's strictly protected because of its importance and because of its um, vulnerability to um, invasive species kind of getting a foothold there. And as I've mentioned, the island is an incredibly important site for a number of different seabirds, and it's an incredibly important site for subadiotic biodiversity. And my appeal to everybody, not only in South Africa, but globally, is that you know, many of you will never see a wandering albatross in your life, but I'm sure that you like the idea of the fact that wandering albatrosses should persist in perpetuity so that our children and grandchildren will also be able to potentially experience them, or know at least that they're still freely soaring above the kind of southern ocean mm -hmm. and this is really um, I've been involved in conservation for almost 30 years now and these sorts of projects are incredible investments as conservation interventions and as we all know many conservation projects require an ongoing kind of approach and just you know they're chipping away at issues trying to change attitudes with regards to climate change for example mm -hmm. and in many many cases, kind of as conservationists, we often feel like there's this threat line which species and habitats are facing, and it seems to be advancing all the time. And often, as conservationists, we kind of in crisis mode, trying to prevent that threat line from kind of being pushed further and further forward. And yeah, just trying to push it back one one little push at a time. One push to, at a time. Yeah. But these eradications of rodents on these insular islands, where the introduced predators mm -hmm. are threatening seabirds and and other fauna provide an opportunity to push back that threat line and almost reset the clock for these threatened species. And there are not many conservation interventions that have that sort of outcome. It's incredible. I mean, the, the return on investment is, is significant and rapid and is, you know, the, the results are kind of in perpetuity. So mm -hmm. these projects leave an incredible conservation legacy. And um, I think my hope is that even people that will never experience Rhone Island would feel that this is a worthy cause to support, that there are these iconic seabirds that have roamed the Southern Ocean for millions of years and deserve to do so for many, many more, and that we have an opportunity to do something here. We have an opportunity to make a difference, to actually reverse the fortunes of these of these seabirds. Um, and we know that the sort of conservation intervention can work and that the results are significant and, um, and can start um, results we can start seeing the results very soon after these operations and the way that people can support the project is to promote it through your networks um, to tell people about it we have a website which is www.mousefreemarion.org okay. um, we have a crowdfunding campaign on there where people can donate a hectare towards the eradication operation so we've got a number of different um, 
funding stream models that we're following. Um, we have uh, received very kind donations from a couple of philanthropists and are approaching various foundations to um, to solicit funding to support the project. Mm -hmm. But then we've also got this crowdfunding initiative where um, individuals can um, can donate a hectare towards the project. And um, there is also an option on the website to sign up to receive news updates and. As I say, I mean, even just promoting the project amongst your networks and your friends to kind of let people know about the importance of this island, the, um, the project itself, and the fact that we have an opportunity here to really make a difference to an important site and to a remarkable group of seabirds. Yeah. Um, are you guys on any social medias with, uh, like, Facebook or Twitter or anything like that, like, tweeting out different things about mice or anything? Um, we, we are on Facebook, <laughs> Facebook? and right. Instagram. And okay. the hashtag is MouseFreeMarion. Mastery Marion. All right. Not on Twitter yet. We might. Oh. Uh, I'm. I'm not very experienced with Twitter. We have a communications officer who's a lot younger than I am and knows social media <laughs> more intimately than me. Um, so I'll speak to her about Twitter, but certainly Facebook and Instagram, um, and then our website. Well, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much, and th thanks for sitting down with us, and thanks for doing what you're doing. Yeah. Well, thanks very much, Hannah and Eric, for the opportunity to yeah get the word out there and to kind of increase awareness about the project. It was, uh, it was great speaking to you both and look forward to keeping in touch. So thank you, Dr. Anton Volfart, for all of that information. So so much stuff. I, I I feel like there's so much to unpack out of everything <laughs> that he had to say. Like, I mean, I, we anything we'd say would just be a rehashing of what he said. He so succinctly and so completely covered so many of the different topics. I, I think we had initially budgeted to talk to him for like 20 minutes yeah. and then it ended up being... We were there for like an hour, hour and a half or so, and only that much made it into the interview because we just didn't have time to kind of get it all in there. And he had to rush off to to go. He had to speak, or you know, he's guiding. Yeah, he, he was going out to the deck to guide right after that. And you know, it was kind of funny afterwards. He was like, "Oh, I, you know, I felt like I talked the whole time," and we were saying like we were just so engrossed with what you were saying. <laughs> I couldn't like, interrupt him. I know exactly. <laughs> um, very professional, and we really appreciate your time. Uh, and you know, it was so much fun to to meet Anton during the cruise, and mm -hmm. you know, be out on deck with him and learn all of this cool stuff about the Marion Islands or Marion Island. Mm -hmm. uh, but one of the things that we kind of touched on at the end that I just wanted to mention was why this really matters because, you know, most people won't ever get a chance to go out to Marion Island or the Prince Edward Islands and see some of these incredible species that we were able to see. And we'll talk in our next episode more about the cruise itself. And, and what we saw and, and what we did and all that. Exactly. But, you know, most people won't have a chance to do that. Like we said earlier, it's a once in a lifetime opportunity. And unless you're volunteering out there or working out there... You maybe they'll go again. Who knows? Maybe. Yeah, <laughs> that's totally a possibility. Um, but, you know, if you never get a chance to go out and see this, why should you contribute to mm -hmm. the effort? And why should it matter to you? And I wanted to mention a principle that I learned in leisure studies that was called the existence value. We basically talked around that right at the end of the interview, just kind of like what it is, but we didn't put a name to it. Yeah, and so the existence value, um, it, it really refers to some that you appreciate that something exists. So, like, you may never see it, but you appreciate that it exists and you want it to continue. That it, it, it means something to you, even if you have no current or potential use of that item or that see, you know, to see that bird, you mm -hmm. still want it to exist in the wild. So there's... There's a lot of things that I'll probably never see, you know, like a Greenland shark. I'll probably never see a Greenland shark, but I want it to exist. And if somebody was to approach me and say, you know, hey, 
you know, would you contribute $10 to this? I might, because I want to make sure that these things are around. If I'm not seeing them, then that somebody else will see them. At, at the bare minimum, things that exist deserve to exist. Yeah. So basically the thing is, um, you know, this project needs money. And if you want these things to exist in the, the world, then you might consider contributing some money to the project. Yeah. I know we did. We we donated a couple hectares a or couple, protected a, a couple of hectares. Yes, I think it's called sponsoring. Um, yeah. So we'll, we'll include links all over in our show notes um, to the different the different social medias and to um, the Mouse Room Marion website. And and we really have to thank uh, Mouse Room Marion and BirdLife South Africa and MSC Cruises for offering this opportunity. I, like I said, mostly MSC Cruises for putting up with all of us birders. <laughs> yeah, and in our next episode, we'll talk more about that. And about how they put up with us. Exactly. So um, other than that, we want to thank you all for listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and maybe learned something. You can rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Music, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to connect with us, you can do so uh, by following Hannah Goes Birding and Eric Goes Birding on Instagram. Our Facebook page is Hannah and Eric Go Birding. Our Twitter is at We Go Birding. Our TikTok is Hannah and Eric Go Birding. Or you can email us at Hannah and Eric Go Birding at gmail.com. You can also check out our website, which is www.gobirdingpodcast.com. And if you feel so inclined, please share the love of birding with your friends.